Chapter Twenty of Organic Evolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Organic Evolution by Richard Swan Lull. Chapter Twenty Aquatic Adaptation. Primarily Aquatic Vertebrates By primarily adaptive forms, we mean the fishes, which have never had a terrestrial ancestry, but have evolved from more primitive aquatic progenitors. As a consequence, their adaptation to a watery medium is perfect, and they do not suffer as those secondarily adapted do, through their inability to breathe water. They are, therefore, the primitive gill-breathing vertebrates, sometimes with accessory air-breathing organs, it is true, but retaining the gills as the chief or only respiratory organs throughout life. But this is not all, for the dense medium in which they live has exerted so profound an influence upon them that, with some exceptions which only serve to emphasize the rule, they are stamped in a common mold, giving them so great a similarity of form that no one fails to recognize a fish. Contour in an aquatic vertebrate is all important, for nature as a marine architect conforms to rules of mathematical precision, the study of which has aided very largely in ship designing. The head, body, and tail are compressed into a beautifully curved, spindle-like form, the entire surface of which is accurately rounded, with no protuberances, which would retard the swift passage of the animal through the water. The head is wedge-shaped, the edges of the jaws and gill covers fit precisely, and even the eyes conform accurately to the curvature of the head. Viewed from the front, the outline of a typical, swiftly swimming fish like the Spanish mackerel, Scomberomerus maculatus, is a perfect ellipse, and the fins which are so prominent when viewed from the side can scarcely be seen, as they are reduced to thin, keel-like lines. The greatest circumference of the fish is approximately 36% of the length measured from the snout, the entering angles being very similar for a great many different fishes. From the point of greatest cross-section, the lines of the run, as it is called, are also very similar. Smooth, hollow curves which freely permit the passage of the displaced water. Locomotion is affected by lateral undulations of the flexible body, aided by the fins. The latter are not, therefore, primary but accessory locomotive organs. The body is thrown into a series of reversed curves which begin at the head, pass along the body, and disappear at the tail. The static water enclosed in the incurved places is pressed upon, causing the fish's forward movement. Of course, 
in an ordinary fish, there is some lost motion or slip, for the water is not sufficiently resistant to oppose the thrust of the body, but in the larval eel, which is a thin, ribbon-like creature whose great relative depth presents a large lateral surface, the swimming is so precise that if a pencil is held in one of the hollows, the fish's body passes without touching it at all. The other extreme is seen in the swimming efforts of an ordinary snake, which, while it does progress, loses a great deal of motion because its lateral surface is not sufficiently great. This increase of resistant surface is obtained in the fish through the development of the unpaired fin folds of the skin, stiffened by fin rays of elastic bone or cartilage. These unpaired fins may be more or less continuous from the head along the midline of the back, around the tail and forward along the underside as far as the vent. Usually, as in the Spanish mackerel, this continuous fin fold is broken up into a number of distinct fins, developed where stresses arise, and disappearing where there are none. The fins along the back are known as dorsal, that around the tail as caudal, and that of beneath the body as anal. Of these, the caudal is by far the most important as a propelling organ. The mackerel also shows horizontal keel-like ridges on either side of the tail. The fish also has lateral or paired fins corresponding to the arms and legs of the terrestrial vertebrate. Of these, the pectoral fins lie just behind the gill apertures at the shoulder, while the pelvics are more variable in position, though normally they should lie on either side of the vent. The paired fins, when held out from the body, may be simple keels like the unpaired fins. The pectorals especially, however, may have additional functions, as they serve as balancers and also to check the animal's way. Perhaps the primitive function of the paired fins was to maintain a horizontal position, as the removal of the pectorals tends to make the fish dive, and of the pelvics to rise to the surface. Air Bladder As a further adaptation to aquatic life, all fishes above the sharks may have a structure known as the air bladder, a hollow organ filled with air or gas, the present function of which is largely hydrostatical, in that it maintains the fish as a certain plane of flotation. If the creature wishes to sink, the body is slightly compressed through muscular contraction, and with it the air bladder. This lessens the bulk, and the weight remaining constant, the specific gravity is increased, with the resultant loss of buoyancy. Relaxation of the muscles has the contrary effect. The compressed gas in the bladder expands, increasing the fish's size and thereby decreasing the specific gravity, and the creature rises. 
the principle is comparable to the method whereby the plane of flotation of a submarine vessel is controlled, although the mechanism differs. For here, water is admitted to the ballast tanks to be driven out again by compressed air, and thus the ship sinks or rises as the case may be. The swim bladder is an outgrowth of the alimentary canal and is a very important organ in the evolution of higher forms, for it is the homologue of the lung of the terrestrial animal, and there can be no doubt that the air bladder of certain ancient fishes, the primary function of which may well have been respiratory rather than hydrostatic, actually evolved into a lung when the drying up of the waters left them stranded and they were forced to become air-breathing. Thus arose the progenitors of all terrestrial vertebrates. See chapter 29. Secondary Aquatic Adaptation Secondarily aquatic forms are the lung-breathers, which, through stress of circumstances, inhospitable lands where food was scarce or competition severe, were forced to return once more to the primal home of their remote ancestors. There is always, as has been said, the handicap of lung breathing, but otherwise the adaptation of certain of the more extreme forms is little short of marvelous. As an offset to this handicap, it should be remembered that lung breathing made possible were at least accompanied a tremendous advance in other organs and their functions, such as a higher brain with a consequent psychological advancement. When the lung breathers turned back to the waters, they readopted only the externals of fish life, but kept in varying degrees the higher brain, and the more efficient methods of aeration of the blood and of locomotion and again and again they easily won a place on the lower level against the most highly specialized of the inferior grades. Amphibious vertebrates, as the name implies, spend part of their time on land and part in the water. They are really terrestrial forms, showing partial aquatic adaptation only which rarely extends beyond the possession of webbed feet, a laterally compressed swimming tail, which may bear a fin-like expansion along its upper margin, and sometimes a lack of coossification of certain of the wrist and ankle bones. The class amphibia, which embraces the historically transitional forms in the original landward migration, modified representatives of which still exist, breathe typically by means of gills during their youth and sometimes throughout their life. Others abandon their gill breathing at the approach of maturity and become as essentially terrestrial as a reptile. Instances of amphibious life among forms above the class amphibia are numerous, but one or two instances will suffice. The Galapagos lizards which were mentioned in chapter 5, are instances of forms 
terrestrial from choice but aquatic from necessity for it will be remembered they live on certain rocky islands of the galapagos group swimming out beyond the breakers and diving for the seaweed upon which they feed there is evidently no menace to their safety ashore but their aquatic excursions are made in actual dread of bodily injury as their behavior indicates here a flattened swimming tail and slightly compressed body are the extent of their aquatic adaptation another instance wherein the habits are inferred rather than the result of observation is that of the late cretaceous trachodons see chapter thirty one a group of dinosaurs to which our knowledge is very complete for not only have all parts of the skeleton and dentition been preserved to us but fossilized mummies as well see chapter twenty five creatures which died in the open and simply dried up so that bone and sinew hide and even portions of the flesh have been preserved with great fidelity these creatures had a wonderful battery of teeth an adaptation to a very harsh herbage presumably the aquisatales or horsetail rushes which are found preserved with them while the modern horsetails may be found in damp situations they are never truly aquatic so the inference is that trachodon found its staple diet on land on the other hand the splendid swimming tail webbed hands and feet imply an aquatic or at least amphibious type add to this the fact that the creature was defenseless utterly devoid either of weapons or armor and that its arch-enemy tyrannosaurus was also terrestrial and we have evidence which points to a reversal of the life conditions of the galapagos lizards for with the dinosaur food was on land and safety and retreat in the waters one would therefore expect the greater relative degree of aquatic adaptations which they show the marine turtles have gone a long step further in that here both food and safety are found at sea and only the need of egg-laying brings them to land at all and this annual shoreward migration is fraught with dire peril which nothing but the most urgent summon would cause them to face there is reason to believe moreover that in some species the males never come ashore the final stage in reptilian adaptation was shown by the ichthyosaurs of the mesozoic whose perfection for their life conditions equaled that of the modern whales even to the utter abandonment of shore going for there is abundant evidence from the contained embryos in several known specimens that these medieval high seas corsairs brought forth their young alive and therefore needed not to go ashore for egg-laying this is a necessary part of ultimate aquatic adaptation for no egg laid by an amniote air-breathing vertebrate 
that is, allantoic egg, can be hatched in the water, as the enclosed embryo would drown as certainly as would a submerged adult. A list of secondarily aquatic vertebrates follows. Thus there are 25 orders of secondarily adapted water-inhabiting vertebrates, all told, some of which are exclusively aquatic. Many of these, of course, are now extinct, so that the whole number is far in excess of those of any one time. Of aquatic lung-breathers, the honor falls to the reptilian order Proganosauria, which are the first in point of time, as their remains are found entombed in rocks of Permian age not very long, relatively, after the reptiles were established. Body Contour As in the case of primarily adapted forms, the bodily contour becomes spindle-shaped, the neck constriction disappears, the tail enlarges, and the same numerical lines prevail as in fishes. This assumption of the fish-like form is best seen in the fully aquatic orders, Ichthyosauria, Cetacea, Sirenia, Pinnipedia, and to a lesser extent in several other groups. The minor factor contributing to this general effect are, first, skull modification. This includes a shortening of the cranium or brain case, which becomes proportionately higher and wider, with a consequent effect upon the proportions of the brain, which is likewise short and wide. The facial portion of the skull, on the contrary, tends to elongate so that many forms, especially those which subsist upon active prey, as the porpoises and ichthyosaurs did, have an elongated slender snout or rostrum. The zygomatic or temporal arch in the cetacea is also reduced almost to a vestige. The neck shortens very materially, and there is a loss of mobility in the swifter, tail-driven types. In those forms like the plesiosaurs, whose paddle propulsion is necessarily slower, an elongated, supple, darting neck is necessary to overtake the swiftly moving prey. In the whales, while the number of cervical vertebrae is the standard mammalian seven, they may be fused into a solid, compressed mass of bone, while the neck of the manatee among Serenia, with but six cervicals, forms one of the three exceptions to the standard number, the other two, as we have seen, belonging to the sloths. In old-fashioned reptiles derived from primitive stocks which early became adapted to aquatic life, such as the ichthyosaurs, the vertebrae retain their ancient simplicity, having simple biconcave bodies or centra like those of fishes. In higher forms, the vertebrae tend to simplify secondarily, due to the fact that the body, being waterborne, is equally supported throughout. Hence the vertical stresses which are the result of gravity in land animals are practically eliminated, 
and the thrust or driving force is transmitted longitudinally through the column. This simplification includes the centra or bodies of the vertebrae, and especially the secondary articulations or zygopophyses. The several processes may become reduced in the trunk region, but elongated in the tail to provide greater area for muscular attachment. The sacrum, that portion of the vertebral column which articulates with the pelvis and which, therefore, in land animals, has to withstand and transmit the supporting strain of the hind limbs, is more or less reduced in direct ratio to the loss of supporting or propelling function on the part of these appendages. Thus, in the ichthyosaurs, cetaceans, and sirenians, the sacrum cannot be distinguished from the other vertebrae, and while its approximate locality cannot be far from the vent, the actual identity of the former sacral vertebrae is lost. The chest of the truly aquatic type tends to become cylindrical. Landforms, on the other hand, generally show lateral compression, especially if they are quadrupedal in their mode of progression, with the body off the ground. The chest in aquatic types is also modified in such a way as to bring the internal cavity higher toward the back. This ensures greater stability of flotation and increased lung capacity, and is accomplished by the ribs tending to become highly arched dorsally, and then to move upward from their point of attachment on the centra to the transverse processes. A gradation in this last feature may be demonstrated by taking first the ichthyosaurs, where the rib articulation is entirely central. Both rib facets, that for the capitulum or head, and that for the tuberculum, being on the body of the vertebra, a unique feature which makes an ichthyosaur centrum unmistakable. In the pinnipedia, the position is transitional, whereas in the whalebone whales, the articulation of ribs and vertebrae is extremely loose probably to allow greater mobility of the chest for the rapid respiration necessary after prolonged submergence. In the Serenia and Cetacea, the diaphragm has become horizontal in position instead of being practically vertical, as in most quadrupedal mammals. The bones of swimming forms tends to become light and spongy. The interstices in those of the whales being filled with oil. Exceptions to this are found in forms which, like the walrus and sirenia, derive their sustenance from the bottom. The walrus feeding on mollusks, the sea cows subsisting on submarine vegetation just as their bovine namesakes graze in terrestrial meadows. This necessitates a ballasting which is secured by increased weight of bones, like the great, wide, massive ribs of the manatee. Externally, the secondarily adapted sea vertebrate is characterized, like the fish, by the elimination of retarding excrescences, 
Hence, in the course of their evolution, aquatic mammals have lost all trace of external ears. This not only renders the contour of the head smoother, but removes a practically useless appendage, for the pinna of the ear has for its especial use the collection of aerial sound waves, a function which is valueless in the submerged form. Thus the ears are reduced in amphibious mammals, and are totally lost in the whales and the true seals and walrus, though retained in reduced condition in sea lions, Otaridae, which spend much of their time ashore. The occasional atavistic occurrence of external ears in the porpoise has been noted. Page 148 the external nostrils, or nares, tend to forsake their old terminal position at the end of the snout and move toward the apex of the head, as in most of the whales, ichthyosaurs, phytosaurs, and mosasaurs, mainly in forms with reduced mobility of neck, in which the vertex of the head first appears above the surface of the water. This one feature is invariably indicative of aquatic life. The nostrils are often capable of being closed, as is seen in desert-adapted forms, like the camel, as a protection against drifting sand. The eyes, in amphibious types, also tend to shift higher on the face, as in the hippopotamus, whose nostrils, eyes, and ears can appear above the surface of the water while all the rest of the head and body remains submerged. The advantage of this is manifest. In truly aquatic types, on the other hand, the eye does not shift its position, as aerial vision has largely lost its importance. But instead of this, the eyes become adapted to aquatic vision, which, because of the denser medium, requires a different curvature of the lenses. Of course, this results in marked nearsightedness when the creature does attempt to see in the air. Penguins, which pursue their prey submerged, are curiously limited in their aerial vision. Locomotive Mechanism Fleshy, fin-like expansions of the body wall occur in the whales and ichthyosaurs, and also probably in the extinct thalatosaurs and sea crocodiles, thalatosuchians. These fins, as in fishes, may be dorsal and caudal. The dorsal fin is a triangular structure, essentially equilateral in the ichthyosaur, very high and narrow in the killer whales, especially Orca rectipina, figure 64. On the other hand, some whales, such as beluga, the white whale, and balena, the right whale, lack the dorsal fin entirely, while in the sulfur bottom, Sebaldus sulfureus, the fin is small, and situated well aft upon the tail. The development of this fin must be entirely a response to mechanical needs, and correlated with a certain bodily form and peculiarity of locomotion, 
just as the deep fin keel of a sailing yacht would be superfluous upon a motor-driven craft. Secondarily aquatic types very often go back to first principles and readopt the old wriggling or undulatory motion of their pristine ancestors, to which fins, etc., are only subsidiary. This also accompanies elongation of body, multiplication of segments, and loss of limbs, as in the zooglodonts and many long-tailed aquatic types. Thus two methods of propulsion are seen among aquatic types, even in those whose adaptation has passed the amphibious stage. Williston has called them oar propulsion and tail propulsion. In the former, exemplified by the turtles and plesiosaurs, the limbs are more nearly equivalent in size and propulsive power than in tail-propelled types. In the latter, which is included in the undulatory form of locomotion, that seen in the ichthyosaurs, whales, and sirenians, the hind limbs tend to disappear until finally no external vestige is discernible though slender bones, representing the pelvis, thigh, and sometimes the tibia, may be found deep buried within the flesh. It is characteristic of secondarily aquatic vertebrates that where unpaired fins are developed, they are never supported by the skeletal elements, known as fin rays, as they are in fishes. They may, however, be strengthened by masses of cartilage. The ichthyosaurs were extinct forms, ranging in time from the Triassic to the late Cretaceous. The earlier species moved largely by means of the limbs, the later ones almost exclusively by the tail. In the former, the hind limbs were nearly as large as the front ones, while in the later ichthyosaurs, as the tail developed, the hinder paddles were reduced in size until they were often very much smaller than those in front. More than sixty years ago, Sir Richard Owen, the great English anatomist, noticing a curious downward dislocation of the tail at its mid-length in many articulated skeletons, came to the conclusion that the ichthyosaurian tail must have borne a terminal fleshy fin quite like that of the whales and sirenians but it was not until forty years later that specimens showing the actual outline of the body and fins were found, and Owen's conjecture verified. His only error lay in the supposition that the caudal fin was horizontal, like those of the mammals, whereas it is vertical, like that of a shark. The ichthyosaur tail is diametrically opposed to that of the shark, however, for in the latter, the backbone is deflected upward into the superior lobe of the fin, whereas in the former, it extends along the front margin of the lower one. This may be due to the fact that the caudal arose as a low fin-like expansion along the upper side of the tail. Not an uncommon thing, among air-breathing vertebrates, and ultimately 
developed into the widely expanded fish-like fin of the later forms. The diagram of the ichthyosaur caudals will make this clear. The thalatosuchia, or sea crocodiles, were a short-lived race, their remains being confined to the rocks of Upper Jurassic Age in Europe. They were also of moderate size compared with other marine vertebrates, ranging from 10 to 20 feet in length. But few forms are known, of which Geosaurus is perhaps the most typical. This type shows a sharp downward bend toward the end of the tail as in the ichthyosaurs, and the inference that like them the creature bore a well-developed caudal fin is undoubtedly correct. Strangely enough, however, the hind limbs were much larger than those in front, probably a character inherited from its shore-dwelling ancestry, and one which the race during its brief career did not have time to modify. The caudal fin of the marine mammals differs markedly from that of the reptiles in being horizontal instead of vertical, and in the symmetry of its two halves or flukes, the bone dividing the tail into two equal parts rather than running into one lobe to the exclusion of the other. In the Serenia the same is true, the manatee having a rounded tail, while in the dugong, halicor, and the recently extinct stellar sea-cow, ritinia, it was notched like that of a whale. End of chapter 20A